brother is watching you. Oh. <laughs> Listeners, you are warned. This program is not to be listened to. Welcome to 1984 Today, your one-stop shop for all things dystopian. I'm your host, Mike Friedman. Our guest today is the author and journalist Jonathan Meyerson Katz, a contributor to The Atlantic, The New York Times, The New Republic, The New Yorker, all the news. He's a real newsman. He reported for Associated Press on the Pentagon, the Middle East, the Dominican Republic, and the Haitian earthquake of 2010. The last topic included covering the UN's role in causing a cholera outbreak after the earthquake, which culminated in the UN admitting responsibility because of his work. He's won the Medill Medal for Courage in Journalism and a National Headliners Award. His most recent book is called Gangsters of Capitalism, Tracing the Life of General Smedley Butler of War is a Racket fame, and he also writes The Racket, which you can find at theracket.news. On November 28, 2023, The Atlantic published an article in its Ideas section by Jonathan called Substack Has a Nazi Problem. In it, he describes and takes issue with the ways in which extremist and racist content is published on Substack, often for paying subscribers. Around that time, I had already invited Elle Griffin to come on the podcast as a guest to discuss her work writing utopian fiction and nonfiction. It just so happened that Elle also wrote an open letter in defense of Substack's walled garden approach to content moderation, in opposition to what was perceived as the more censorious angle in Jonathan's article. Jonathan was kind enough to listen to the episode, and he reached out, so we're here together to discuss his perspective on the issue and hopefully a little more besides. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for thanks for having me. So, I suppose what I would like to kick off with is I'd love to know how your article in The Atlantic came about. Was it something you pitched, something you were researching yourself? Was it a commission from them? How how did it spring forth? Yeah, it was a pitch. Um the way the the sort of the backstory uh, it really came out of reporting that I'd done over the summer of 2023 uh, about Substack on my Substack on the racket. Um, the uh, co-founder of Substack, Hamish McKenzie, had on uh, what was at that moment the Substack flagship podcast. I think the podcast has kind of gone dormant since then. Um, called the Active Voice. He had as a guest a guy named Richard Hanania who um, some of your listeners may be familiar with, um, he was billed as an enlightened centrist or somebody who was promoting enlightened centrism. But I happen to know a little bit about Richard Hanania, um, really from social media, from seeing him on on Twitter. He's, he, he, he describes himself, I think, somewhat facetiously, somewhat self-defensively as a troll. Um, but he is uh, not a centrist. Um, I also don't think he's particularly enlightened. Um, and he says extremely racist things. He, he holds extremely racist views um, about the inherent criminality of black people, um, the inherent uh, differences in intelligence between races, um, things that are just sort of, you know, definitionally old school, like, you know, early mid 20th century racism. Ideas that might be described as vintage. Vintage, yes, yes. I would, I would, I would, I would, I would say that. Um, and I was a little put off <laughs> by the fact that um, 
uh, Hamish had him on the podcast. Um, and, and the way that it be, it was a very kids glove kind of interview. Um, I'm not, you know, it, it, it's, well, I can, I can get into, into, into sort of the nitty gritty of, of my thoughts about that, but the, 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 suffice it to say, I just thought that, you know, look, it would make a good newsletter to talk about what does this guy actually believe, you know, and, and, and what, what, what did he actually talk about during that podcast? And his, his main thrust was um, promoting his, his main intellectual project of late, which has been uh, to call for the, the repeal of, of the 1964 Civil Rights Act or the gutting of the Civil Rights Act, I think he would probably say. Um, and, uh, and at the end of that interview, Hanania, you know, Hamish asked Hanania to recommend some other substacks that he thought that, you know, listeners might be interested in. And he recommended um, two white nationalists, um, uh, one of whom um, is is a self-described, you know, Danish-German ethno-nationalist. Um, and the other one is sort of opinions vary, but he's he he I think is 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 very very clearly somebody who 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 promotes um, a white supremacist worldview. So I wrote about that. It got some attention. Um, that ended up uh, creating some sort of follow-on uh, reporting that I did um, about this sort of shady nonprofit that Hinania runs. Um, while I was doing that, that th- that reporting that I did prompted a an expose in the Huffington Post, which revealed that not only was Hinania a racist on main on on his Twitter feed today, but 10 years before he had written even more extreme, even more explicitly racist and explicitly genocidal writings under a pen name. And uh, and, and when I say genocidal, his specific form of genocide, and this, this is genocide under, under the, the, the convention, under the UN uh, uh, Convention on Genocide, uh, was calling for the forced sterilization of people who he considers low IQ, which, he can, which, which uh, to him includes um, Black and, and Latino people. So um, I was like, okay, <laughs> that's even worse than I thought. Um, and the thing that, that uh, you know, I was like, I, what will Substack do with this? Um, what, what will they do with this information? And th- they were already, you know, not responding to many requests for comment that I had made. Um, and I should say, as, as, a, as a backstory, um, I had been on Substack for, you know, four and a half years, almost five years at that point. Um, I joined um, at the personal invitation of Hamish McKenzie. We were, we were never friends, but like we were, we, we would, you know, just because we didn't meet, meet each other, we lived in different places. But we, you know, we would we would correspond cordially on a, on a fairly regular basis. Sometimes over the phone. I have I have his phone number, and he was just, you know, ghosting me. He was just he he wasn't responding to comment. Um, and I was like, well, maybe he'll comment on this. <laughs> maybe this like this this definitely seems to like be even more fuel to the to 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 the fire in the case that. You know, he had erred in in um, presenting him as an enlightened centrist. Um, that you know, that to use that quote. Um, but instead, Substack doubled down. Um, uh, uh, Hanania wrote this sort of non-apology on his Substack, in which he, you know, kind of it was sort of a an Words apology. Were said. Sh- yeah, it was like an apology shaped 
piece. It was the sort of thing that you would look at and be like, oh, this looks, it's, this is timed like an apology. This is formatted like an apology. But if you actually looked at what he said, he wasn't apologizing for anything. He was saying, you know, I was wrong for calling for forced sterilization. I don't think he used those specific terms, but he, you can, you can sort of read between the lines. Um, and, and, you know, I'm embarrassed that I was, you know, he was writing for extreme, you know, uh, neo-Nazi, you know, alt-right, including literally alternativeright.com. He wrote for that at the at the invitation of Richard Spencer. Um, and he certainly wanted to distance himself from that. He also had a book coming out at the time. But in that non-apology, he said that he was the victim of a cancellation effort by liberal journalists who objected to uh, discussing, I forget the exact words that he used, but it was essentially like the inherent statistical differences, I think, between races. So like, essentially, they don't like the fact that I think that races are different, biologically different from one another. Um, they don't like the fact that I'm racist. Um, and Substack just, they, they doubled down again. Um, they praised this non-apology and then they continued promoting his work, including his his then upcoming book, which, which came out with HarperCollins. And it was around that time that other people who were, you know, readers of the racket, started sending me, um, they were like, hey, I don't know if you know this, um, but there are like actual, actual, literal Nazi publications on Substack. Um, and when I say actual literal, I'm talking about like Heil Hitler, here's a swastika or a black sun, um, you know, Jews are parasites. It's just, it's just, it's like very, you know, very Nazi. This is not swastikas, side partings, yes. and knee-length boots. Right. This is not, you know, this was, this is not. These were not edge cases. They were, they were like, they were like, you should know that these things are out there. And I was trying to figure out, like, well, what do I do with this? So first, I, you know, started doing more research. Um, I started looking for, and a lot of the, the the research that I was doing was just using Substack's own recommendations feature to see what other, you know, people people like recommending things that are similar to their points of view. I, I did the same thing. Um, and I was like, well, so who are the Nazis recommending? I was like, oh, they're re recommending other Nazis. And also they're recommending, Shocker. yes. <laughs> and they're also recommending, you know, uh, eugenics blogs they're recommending you know you know just sort of general white supremacist anti-semitic um stuff people who read adolf hitler also read herbert spencer yeah exactly kind of exactly quite sure. and i was like what okay what do i do with this so i had i had a couple of thoughts um my first thought was well i'll make a post out of this like i'll i will i will put this on on my sub stack um and this was we're talking sort of late summer it was like September, I think, of 23. Um, and at that point, I reached out again. Um, I had sort of just become, you know, <laughs> I don't know about omnipresent, but, you know, I was sort of like periodically, every time something came up, when there was this Huffington Post uh, expose, et cetera, you know, I, I would write Hamish, I'd write Chris Best, who's the, the Substack CEO. And I'd be like, so what? what's your response to this? So in September, I was like, look, guys, I have found some really, really, really aggressive stuff. Really, this and this is stuff that, um, and we'll, we'll we'll get into sort of my 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 feelings for about and what, what I was going for. But like in in, in the most extreme cases here, 
Like it was, it just seemed very clear to me. Like it seems like this is again, you have in your terms of service, you, you don't allow hate. And it seems like, like a, like a, a newsletter that calls itself like a national socialist newsletter and has as its entrance graphic, the Brandenburg gate during like Hitler's birthday celebration in like 1936 or something like that with like swastika banners hung from it. It seems to me, it seems like that might violate your terms of service. It, I can't it might, speak. It for might you. be hate adjacent. It might be hate adjacent. I can't. And I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to like, I, maybe I sound facetious, but I'm like, I can't speak for you guys. I need you to speak for yourselves. Like what is going on here? What, what, what's happening here? And they didn't respond. And I was, and then I was like, okay, <laughs> so I'm a journalist, right? And I'm like, oh, all right. So I've got information here. I think it's interesting. I think people should know about it. Also, the only people who can really answer this question about like what their policy is and like what, what their, what their vision for Substack is, what they're doing are the Substack founders um, who, despite the fact that we used to, you know, trade emails frequently and the fact that I've like bought into their, you know, crowdfunding uh, project when, when, when their uh, series C uh, fundraising round failed, um, you know, has, have decided, you know, new phone who dis, I was like, well, okay. So one way to do this is to put this in a national publication and, you know, for, for, for anyone who is listening, who doesn't know how, this works. Um, it is not so for some people, some people who are on like sort of contracts or who work for a, a place and they sort of have a, a regular piece, they might need the editor to buy in on their idea, but like they can get things in more easily. I'm a freelance journalist. I don't work for the Atlantic. I don't work for the New Yorker. I don't work for any of, of, of the other places that I've, I've written for. I have done work for them, but I don't work. I'm not, I'm not on staff. I don't work for them. So I pitched a couple of different places. And the Atlantic bit, they were like this, okay, this sounds interesting. What do you got? And we talked about it and I, you know, put together a draft and it went through various iterations. And then uh, ultimately took a lot of editing, um, world events intervened, um, uh, both on my end and theirs in terms of, of things that were also drawing our interest. And I... Uh, the piece ended up coming out, as you said, in in late November. So after several months of work, and uh, you know, it was only that it was only having this piece published in the Atlantic that got um, Substack to come out f uh, uh, of their shell at all and make any kind of comment. And it was a fairly anodyne comment, um, but that was it. And I, I I put the piece out, um, and uh, we can we can talk about what happened what's happened since. Well, I suppose then maybe before we get into what the result of the publishing of the article was in terms of pushback and responses that you received, something that I think might be useful. I know, I know I'd like to know, and I think it would be useful at this point as well, is for you yourself, you're a journalist, your job is writing things often as your track record shows that some people don't want to hear and would probably prefer weren't published. So 
what kind of end game did you have in mind if you had one in mind at all for publishing the article? So, for instance, what I mean by that is one of the interpretations of the article, and I say interpretations because you're here, it's for you to say, but one of the interpretations is that it was essentially either pushing for or calling for or kind of implicitly implicitly suggesting that it would be better if certain types of content were banned centrally, were prevented from being published, or were demonetized, deamplified, and so forth. I'm not saying you meant to say that, but reading the article and from what people who I have spoken to about it said, that was definitely an implication they picked up from it. So from you, what was what did you have in mind when you were writing it? What what were you trying to get Substack to say when you ended up publishing the article because they didn't say anything to you before? My my goal, somewhat narrowly construed, um, and I think you know it, it, it's a thing that that often informs my my my, my journalism in general, um, is that I didn't have like I didn't I didn't I wasn't making a policy prescription. Um, I, I very rarely do. I, uh, you know, you you were talking you know sort of in 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 the intro about my reporting on the cholera epidemic in, in Haiti after the earthquake, right? Um, it was an epidemic that ended up killing, it's killed, you know, 10,000 people, maybe several multiples of that, the, the, the sort of the estimates vary. Um, and at the time um, I was getting, you know, sort of similar questions um, from people at the UN, uh, people at the CDC, at the WHO, people in in in, in even in in my own news organization, in, in, at the Associated Press, who I did work for at the time as a full time employee, um, like, what are you trying to do? I was like, I'm trying to figure out <laughs> who caught co- what caused the cholera epidemic, <laughs> and why they seem to be, and why there se- why there are all these, uh, why why there seems to be a cover up, why there why there are contradictions, and 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 so on. Um, I didn't have. You know, out of that reporting, um, a, a movement sprung up um, that I wasn't part of, except as somebody who was sort of informing it as as a journalist um, to get reparations for the the cholera victims in Haiti for the for for mm. both people who were sickened and 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 the, and the families of people who died. But I wasn't like, you know, my 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 first piece wasn't you know UN caused cholera in Haiti reparations needed right. It was it was just. There seems to be something happening at this UN base. The, the UN says that there's nothing happening here, but I went to the base, and it seems like there is there's evidence here that that there was there was some kind of sewage leak, and that and that a cholera epidemic seems to have come from here, right? And it's sort of similar here. Like all I had was a s- surprising and somewhat shocking to me number of white supremacist, white nationalist, absolute like literal neo-Nazi, some neo-Confederate, those guys exist still in the world, like newsletters out there on Substack. And I thought people should know about it. And I wanted to know what Substack's policy was about it. So that then people, I'm a Substacker, right? So I could make a decision about what to do with my newsletter. So other people could make decisions uh, about what to do with theirs. Um, I, if you read the piece, um, which some people who have criticized it have, 
<laughs> Other people saw the headline and then got mad. Yes, exactly. Can, I'm sure. You know, yeah. And there's a paywall. I get it. I mean, there's, you know, and everybody's busy, but like, um, if you read the piece, I think it's, it, it, it comes through, or at least I tried to make it come through, um, that I'm somewhat ambivalent about the question of deplatforming and kicking people offline in general. Um, I quote, um, it was Whitney uh, Phillips, was Whitney it? Phillips? Yeah, she's a yeah. professor at, at the University of Oregon. Um, she's done a lot of work on online extremism. She wrote a very helpful uh, document um, called uh, "The Oxygen of Amplification." Um, and you know, I quote her in in the piece, being like, "You know, banning people from social media platforms, which Substack is one, um, often backfires. It makes them." feel like victims it 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 inspires sometimes new people to to rush to their cause um it can be a fundraising opportunity um on the other hand there is evidence out there that um to a certain extent and for certain kinds of speech in certain kinds of situations deplatforming works um it it keeps uh hateful ideologies from gaining steam um and uh, it's th- this is not these are not these are not simple questions, um, and because of that, I wasn't proposing a simple answer. Um, in fact, you know, I can tell you that you know, in my conversations with my editors at, at the Atlantic, you know, they were, um, you know, I was like, I was like, look, I'm not, I- I'm not writing a piece that's like the following newsletters should be banned from Substack, and they were like, look. <laughs> but you have to take a position on this because people are going to read it as as if mm. you are That's saying interesting. This, so it was right? the it was the editorial discussion around how to position the article and tone it that Yeah, in part they in encouraged part. you to 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 not slant but to to have a position rather than to say this is happening and people should know and feel the way they feel about it. I mean, look, I stand by the piece entirely. Like it's not it's not that I'm not trying to I'm not trying to throw my editors on no sure but But, it's curious it's interesting for me to i mean yeah yeah he i mean like so so i can tell you as i remember it like there's a line in there uh this i think the end of you know a section that's like you know if you know if 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 a national socialist newsletter doesn't violate uh you know substacks uh, uh policy against hate speech like what does that I think was a line that was suggested to me by the editor. Now the fact mm-hmm. that it's in there is is in large part because I was like, yeah, it's a good point. And like a lot of you know a lot of um, you know people who th- there are people who don't agree or, or don't agree with sort of the entire conversation or don't want to have had this conversation, and they'll just sort of say kind of like almost offhandedly. Um, I'm thinking of like a, 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 a you know, a, a newsletter that I subscribe to um, who is staying on Substack. And he kind of said as sort of like a, a throwaway line sort of at the end. He was like, look, I, I think probably these Nazis shouldn't be on Substack. I, I, I agree with that. Um, but I but he was also sort of like, but I'm 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 also not going to like lose a lot of sleep over it was sort of his point of view. Hmm. Um, and. You know, I. Yeah, I mean that I, I, it's part part of part of the you know part of the thing that I think you know helped make it a I thought a better and more robust and more thoughtful piece um, was that I ta- I I I expressed you know some ambivalence 
Um, I talked about sort of arguments for and against. I talk about in the piece um, the contradictions of deplatforming online. Um, I talk about uh, the fight over um, uh, Palestinian voices um, in what I consider to be, and I've written at length about, um, an ongoing genocide in Gaza uh, being perpetuated by Israel. Um, uh, you know, and I was like, look, these aren't. These aren't these aren't straightforward issues, um, but I thought it was important to at least know what we're talking about and what's out there, and then you know people can have conversations and Substack can you know make its position clear, which ultimately they did, um, and then people can can decide what to do with that. Um, I you know I know it upset a lot of people, and and you know I. I was I was cognizant of the fact that it would, but but nonetheless, like I thought it was important to have the information out there. Well, look, I mean, first of all, I think the speed with which people get upset about insert thing here these days, I don't think the fact that someone gets upset about something is grounds to regret putting it out there. So, uh, uh, you know, and especially because, as we've mentioned before, you're a a journalist's job, or at least a key part of a good journalist's job, is to say things people don't want to hear in places where people don't want them to be. Um, and it, and that cuts both ways. It it should cut both ways if we're going to have a robust and honest conversation about anything, right? And and I should also add, I was one thing that I was cognizant of for myself was that I wasn't doing myself economically any favors by drawing attention to a serious problem on the platform where I publish. Um, and I was also aware, and this ended up happening, that other people would note that there could be an economic um, downside for them and get very mad at me. And I think that that's, I think, honestly, I think that's a large part of, 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 what has happened. I mean, I think people, even from, from right from the beginning, it, it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't within like the first 48 hours, but pretty close to, to the publication, you know, Matt Taibbi wrote a very angry piece in which he, you know, just, just tried to fling excrement at me. Um, and, you know, part of what I was taking from, from, from his piece there, which I wrote a response to, um, was that he was that he recognized that this could have a negative effect on his financial bottom line. He, even to a much greater extent than I, to a much greater extent than almost anybody, um, is extremely financially invested in Substack, the brand. And so he was going to defend the brand, and he defended the brand using the the language that a certain group of substackers and you know to to a certain extent the founders um used to defend themselves and to and to promote themselves um that essentially they see substack as a corrective to the mainstream media they see it as a a a tool or a weapon in kind of a a sort of dissident discourse um and that they are they are champions of free speech and free inquiry and that whatever you want to call it the regime the cathedral the people have different terms gatekeepers ivory towers 
yeah, the, the, intelligentsia, the, it, coastal yeah, elites. Et Ten years ago, it was the lamestream media, the MSM, right? Lamestream um, is not my least favorite pun, though. It's pretty good. It's fine. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it's also, yes, it's also accurate often. Um, but, I mean, I, yes, a lot of it is very extremely lame. But um, regardless, um, uh, that essentially, you know, that, that, and, you know, the fact that I was like, the fact that I had published this in The Atlantic, which is a publication that I have had much criticism for over the years, um, I think well founded. Um, you know, it, 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 it left me open to, it, it left the, the article open to that positioning. Hmm. Oh, look, here comes the big, here comes the big establishment. They're trying to crush little, <laughs> little me, little Matt Taibbi, who is like the most mainstream of, I mean, he like, he has like a, like a regular spot on like a, on an HBO talk show. He like makes millions of dollars off of, he is, he is. He is as he is as established. He like he testifies in front of Congress on a fairly regular basis. He is extremely established. He's extremely mainstream, and it, it's it is a very specific lane of the mainstream. Um, but it, but but you know he has to like he brands himself as a as a dissident, and so here he is, the little dissidents, and here I am, you know, the big the big uh, Atlantic writer. Um, trying to crush the little guy, and you know, I I don't I don't think he's I don't think that's accurate. I don't think it's it's I don't think it's it's a it's a particularly good argument if you actually look at the facts. But it's also extremely effective branding. And if you think that your bottom line is going to be affected by some sort of criticism against the platform that you are on. Um, why not pull it out? It's 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 right there in the quiver, and so I think I think that that drove a lot that 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 and he helped you know lay the groundwork for it. That has driven a lot of the the the, the discourse, the capital D discourse around my piece and what's come since. Well, since you brought up the question of a bottom line, mm. something that it would be remiss not to mention. But I'm mm -hmm. not bringing it up because I'm arguing that it is a major part of it or could be. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there is a tussle, so to speak, mm -hmm. between what probably the most acceptable term these days is the legacy media mm -hmm. and the, the so-called new media, which is to say basically maybe not even that independent because it's still paid for by someone or by subscribers. And in the end, people will naturally end up creating content that people want to see because otherwise they won't pay for it. So there's a lot of arguments that come up that are kind of true until someone succeeds to the point where they need to give the people what they want because there mm. are enough people that they need that money. Mm. Um, so I'm not kind of, saying that anyone is worse or better than anyone else in that regard. Mm. But the Atlantic is a very um, well-recognized brand in the so-called legacy media. Yep. And it is, if we were to assume a kind of zero-sum, limited amount of time and eyeballs scenario, mm -hmm. it is in competition with what is perceived as the, the new or newer media. And it's not 
totally missed my notice that since your article, just on, um, I think it was the 12th of January, The Atlantic published another piece specifically about Substack by Jacob Stern. Mm -hmm. And so I suppose in the question of the bottom line, people who, as you say, may be defensive of Substack because they don't want it to be seen as a haven for Nazis because that's also where they live and they don't want people feeling dirty subscribing to them there. And that's one possible motivation for people to be defensive. But at the same time, it's also a motivation for someone who's in competition with that platform to attack it. Do you think that's a reasonable observation? I mean, I don't know. This is, this is going to sound crazy to some people, uh, people who, 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 who come to this from a certain point of view. Um, I don't, first of all, the legacy media is dying, um, and in, in to, to a large extent, it is it is dead. <laughs> um, there's very little of it left. Um, I, the, the, you you can look at the statistics, you look at the number of jobs that that are out there, um, but suffice it to say, there's some statistic that I saw recently, and I'm maybe getting this completely wrong, but it was something like it was like a quarter of all journalists who are employed in the United States right now are employed by the New York Times, or it was it was something it was something crazy like that. Um, I, I may, maybe I'm maybe I'm getting this completely wrong, but it was it it was something along those lines because there aren't jobs, but there the 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 couple of survivors and there's a very small number of them, and really the Times is the biggest of all of them because the Times is really at this point like a it's essentially like a gaming company with like a news annex. Um, I mean it's it's like <laughs> it really is that, like please. It really is. It's like it's essentially like like people subscribe to the Times to play Wordle and and uh, Spelling Bee and get recipes, um, and then like they and and then it's like an, an added bonus to, to to their subscription. They get you know the news package. And, it's like and getting video with Prime from Amazon. Exactly, and they get. Yeah. I mean, and this is like this is the this, news is the excuse to subscribe, but not the yeah. reason. <laughs> this is deeper than we may want to get. This is a, this is also how it's always worked. I mean, like people people used to subscribe to newsletters to get coupons and sports scores and classified ads, and and then you know they they would get with that, you know, news that they were sometimes interested in and sometimes not. Um, but certainly, the news didn't tend to pay for itself. It was it was the it was it was it was the fact of the publication of the distribution of the paper product that had ads in it. That really is what funded the the, the whole enterprise. Yeah, it was the um, thing kind of, around the advertising that justified yeah. it not just being a supermarket freebie giveaway. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, this is why you know we we were we 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 you know journalists we 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 wrote this we wrote the filler between ads um, on its way to becoming birdcage liner and fish wrap. I mean, that's many people have said that this is not original to me. That's how it used to work. And the New York Times is sort of alone in having figured out like a way to sort of, you know, somewhat jury rig a model of that in, in, in the in the 20th century, uh, 21st century. Um, the Atlantic, I think, you know, to 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 a lesser extent, it it seems to be a survivor at this point. But there are a lot of Atlantic writers. I mean, I can tell you like offhand because I was reading him last night, James Fallows, um, longtime Atlantic writer, probably I think he's still on staff. Um, he has a Substack. Um, like, you know, I, I don't think that these things are necessarily in, 
competition with one another. I, I know that like, you know, from, from being, you know, sort of an elder millennial who was in, in the news industry um, during the, the rise of, of social media, you know, a lot of news properties, a lot of, of, of news organizations looked at social media as being a competition for them. And then they realized very quickly that it was actually an asset for them. Um, and then they had really kind of mixed feelings about it because it was also giving their individual reporters too much power um, and was making them into public figures um, who was harder to boss around and whose labor was harder for them to exploit, et cetera. So a whole lot of, so a whole lot of things here. So, but I just, I, I guess I'm, I'm I want to like, just this, I, I know, and I know this, is, this sounds like crazy. And, and, and the fact that it's coming from somebody who had a byline recently in the Atlantic, I think I've written something like five articles for them over eight years or something like that. Um, and they interviewed me once. Um, but you know, that, that, you know, somebody who has in their mind is associated with the Atlantic is, you know, it sounds like I sound like, you know, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Right. It's like, it's like, oh, don't worry, little girl. I'm your friend. It's like, right. But, but I really, I really, I mean, like the, the, the fact is that the news industry is, is dying. It is being, it is being murdered. Um, It is being murdered by people, by some of the same people who are, you know, the, the big investors in, um, social media platforms and Substack, um, and and it is creating a place where, like you know, journalists like myself. I mean, like again, I've been I've been on, I was on Substack. I I, re- I recently left. Um, I'm I'm on Beehive now, but I I I I was on Substack from from 2019 from from you know what from back when people were like they had no idea what Substack was, and and the fact that I was like, writing a newsletter, they were like, you're doing a what what who what? Like they didn't, this didn't compute. And, and it is, that has changed to a certain extent. Still, I had a conversation this week where, with somebody where I just dropped the word Substack in the conversation. They were like, Oh, what? So it still happens. Um, but, um, I, so I don't think, I, I don't think that I have not seen evidence that maybe I'll, maybe I'll put it this way, like a little bit more journalistically. I, I don't see evidence that, you know, the Atlantic feels threatened by Substack that that people are not subscribing to the Atlantic and they're going to newsletters instead. Maybe they do. I don't know. Maybe you can get Jeffrey Goldberg to come onto your podcast and he will talk about that. Um, But I don't see it. I don't see any evidence of that because among other things, anything that allows, so the, the 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 actual business model that these surviving legacy publications uh, thrive on is their ability to underpay freelancers to to continually be coming to them with content and competing against other freelancers in ways that keep prices down. And the way that that is possible for them to do that is for us to not all starve to death. And so we have to have some way that we're, that we are putting food in our refrigerators. Um, and Substack is a way to do that. So if Substack or, or, or newsletters or Patreon or, you know, buy me a coffee or whatever, like whatever, you know, uh, uh, modes freelance journalists have, to stay alive, 
um, and allow the, us to keep working. Um, if all of those things went away, a magazine like The Atlantic wouldn't have content because they because they would be forced to rely. Maybe this is less true for the of The Atlantic than others, but I think it's probably true for them as well. Like they would then be forced to rely on their full time employees who require living wages and benefits and parental leave and you know and all these other things, right? Or LLMs, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, which so far, uh, uh, the Atlantic has not, I believe, succumbed to, but but others are. Um, yeah, and so yeah, I mean, and well, maybe I mean that that could happen. That could definitely happen. Mm. Um, I mean, I don't know if the Atlantic would go for that, but I, you know, the, the, you know, the Sports Illustrated recently got caught using uh, AI uh, for articles that nobody reads because Sports Illustrated barely existed anymore, even before it, it just got killed. Um, in its in it in in the nursing home. Um, well, can can yeah. I ask then, just yeah. on on that line of reasoning, mm-hmm. there's competition in a bottom line financial way, as you've spoken to, but mm-hmm. then. We recently had a representative of the Wall Street Journal, I think it was, speaking at Davos, who mm. said that um, something along the line, I'm not going to pretend to have it verbatim, but something along the lines of, we used to control the narrative and the facts, and now we don't anymore. And we have to accept that. Now, I'm not saying that to put words in her mouth in terms of what she might mean by the narrative or Mm -hmm. by facts. And I'm not suggesting that it means that outlets like the WSJ were lying about things. I'm not getting into that. I guess what I'm saying is there's competition for money, Mm -hmm. but then there's also kind of competition for ecosystem dominance in terms of when someone says something, who is it that people listen to? Who believes the source of the message? Um, and, you know, and in a way we get into this kind of reputational territory, which is also something I'm curious about, which is more to do with what I see as a perhaps a less genteel way of doing journalism where people, as they say in, in soccer terminology, tend to play the man and not the ball, mm-hmm. um, which we can get onto in a moment. So I guess, where do you think the legacy media, which as you say, are potentially thrashing around trying to plug a leak that they can't plug financially, mm-hmm. but are also seeing their real influence wane over the way that society tells itself the stories that give it a coherent sense of what is happening. I mean, I can't, I don't, I don't know who this person was that you're referencing or what she said. Yeah, I'll tell you what, give me, if you give me a second, I'll just look it up. Can, I can cut out the pause. Sure. Um, Cause I don't want to misspeak, but um, it was a direct quote. I saw the actual video clip. Um, if you go back really not, not that long ago, as I say, we kind of, we owned the news. We were the gatekeepers and we very much owned the facts as well. If it said it in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, then that was a fact. Nowadays, people can go to all sorts of different sources for the news and they're much more questioning about what we're saying. So 
it's no longer good enough for us just to say, this is what happened or here's, here's, this is the news. We have to explain, our, almost like explain our working. So readers expect to understand how we source stories. They want to know um, uh, how we go about getting stories. They, we have to sort of lift the bonnet, as it were, and in a way that newspapers you know, aren't used to doing and explain to people what we're doing. We need to be much more transparent about how we go about collecting the news. I think that she's saying that um, there is more distrust. There's always been a lot of distrust in sure, the media, but, there, but but she, you know, she's saying, and and some of that is, some of that has been weaponized. Some of it is is as you know, I, I saw this coming, you know, uh, a decade and a half ago, um, even before Trump, with Sarah Palin, um, you know, where where it was, it was like it was from my point of view, it was like of course it was a politician saying. I don't like the people who who report on me. I don't like the people who tell who 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 talk about things that I don't want them to to talk about. Um, so don't don't read them. Listen to me. And she could use new technologies in which she could b- basically had her own printing press and her own television studio in in the form of you know Facebook at the time and Twitter, and she could just you know go directly you know unmediated. To the people, but of course, what that meant was, you know, she's a politician. Politicians lie, and so it was like, of course, I can just I can lie, and I can I can spin, and I can say whatever I want directly to to my fans. And and this there's there's there are deeper um, uh, political uh, 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 dynamics that 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 have have grown over the decades. A lot of it comes out of just sort of still seething conservative. Um, uh, anger over Watergate and what they see as as a president being taken down um, by the media and Roger Ailes at that moment uh, comes up with an, a plan uh, called you know put the GOP on TV which becomes Fox News um, under under his watch and the idea is that like you know you know what we'll ne- we're never going to let the Washington Post this is a very uh, it's 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 a very um, o- oversimplified version of what happened in Watergate, but but essentially from their point of view, it was like we're never going to let the Washington Post take down another Republican president. We're we're going to have our own uh, sources of of information, and we are we are going to you know sow mistrust, and we're going to and we're going to to, to to create doubt, and this works in large part because it it dovetails very nicely with journalistic ethics and journalists' own conception of ourselves. Um, so I don't know Emma Tucker. I had actually never, I'm showing my ignorance here that I didn't know who the editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal was, but I hadn't even heard of her in, in, until until you brought up this quote. Um, I don't know how long she's been in her job for. Let me see. Um, looks like, oh, uh, 2022. That's why. So it's not not for as, not, 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 not that long ago. Um, late 2022. Anyway. Um, it dovetails very nicely with with journalists because we like in our conception of ourselves, right? We are always we have all these like you know pithy sayings that you learn in journalism school. You know, if your mother says you, she loves you, check it out, right? Get a second source. Um, you know, do, you know, don't you know? Never assume. If you you know, assuming makes an ass out of you and me, right? All these like fun things that we all say to each other. And like, and we're constantly, we're constantly checking our own work. We're checking our, our colleagues' work. Um, uh, you know, go back to Watergate. I mean, like in, in those, you know, in, in those halcyon days of yore, 
um, you had, you know, the, the competition to, to um, uh, uh, the Washington Post, which was, you know, primarily the New York Times, you know, a lot of the ways that they were in the story and they, and they ended up doing uh, very significant work on it as well was because they were, tr- they were in competition. They were trying to beat them. They were also trying to, f- to catch them in mistakes. Um, this is a thing, all the, the, the Haiti cholera story. I mean, I had pushback from, as I noted earlier, from within AP, you know, the, the AP correspondents who were closer to, you know, senior officials at the UN and things like that. They were like, are you sure? We've got this guy in Haiti. He's a kid. He's saying all these crazy things. How could the UN have brought cholera to Haiti? I was like, well, here are the facts. And like, well, are you sure about this? What, what about that? That fact maybe is wrong. I was like, well, what? No, it's right. And here are my, like, we're, this is what we do, right? And so it was, it was sort of a, it was kind of knocking on an open door um, for people who wanted to sow mistrust um, to pull from within the profession um, the kinds of sort of, of, of mistrust and uh, maybe not mistrust, but but um, uh, uh, skepticism that is built into uh, the profession and, and, to, and to exploit that. And the thing is that, and I, I think this is kind of what Tucker is saying here, but it's certainly what I'm saying. That's what I've been saying for years. And I've taught journalism and 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 I I've studied journalism. I've been a journalist for for for, for over two decades now. You know, the the only thing that we have to sell ultimately is trust, right? Because ultimately, especially in in print, although increasingly also in in visual media, especially with with the rise of AI and deepfakes. The only thing that we, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you know, if I go to a UN base and I see leaking sewage, the only way that you know that I'm telling the truth is if you trust me and I've earned your trust and I'm sort of re-earning your trust in the, in the story, right? I've got transparent sourcing. I have facts that can be checked, um, et cetera. And... And also, uh, yeah. and also issuing timely and open and accepting corrections. Yes. And yes. owning errors, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And we, yes. Um, but even then, even then, you know, people whose game is to sow mistrust will, will then try to exploit those structures and those, those modes of operating. I mean, I can tell you, again, as a journalist, every time I've done a story about, especially about a powerful individual or a powerful entity, a powerful corporation. Organization, yeah. Yeah. Um, the first thing that they do is try to find something wrong in the story so they can get a correction. And it doesn't matter how minor it is. And they try to get a correction appended to it so that they can point to it and say, well, see the whole, th- it was, th- th- that, that person wasn't careful. It was, th- they were, they were. Uh, they were erroneous. I can, I can just one example. Um, I, you know, for years I ended up reporting a lot on, on Duke energy. Um, it's a, a, a power company in, in the Southern United States. Um, and they were just relentless. Anytime I wrote about them, they, they, I, I started covering them because there was a big coal ash spill, um, in North Carolina. And I, you know, and they were just relentless. They would just like, they would just go through every story with a fine tooth comb. And they don't even really care if it's true. Another story I wrote. You uh, said uh, it was potassium nitrate, but it was actually potassium it, citrate. Exactly. Stuff like that. <laughs> I, I, um, I, I did a story in the New York Times Magazine um, about um, 
violence and sort of a, a threatened and partially carried out ethnic cleansing against people of Haitian descent in the Dominican Republic. It was a big feature. And the Dominican government, they, you know, they, they came with a list of, you know, and it, a lot of them were just they were complete. It was just complete BS. Like there was, there was no, there was, it wasn't true or they were, they were just like over interpreting or whatever. It didn't matter what it was. They just, they just wanted to get, and I don't even, I don't think any of them even got in. Maybe, maybe there was a correction. I, you'd have to look, but like, you know, this was like, this was like in a, in a, it was like an 8,000 word story. Um, and you know, if they can just, if they can just be like, well, you spell the name wrong. Then they can use that. So it's you know again. And they can these say are, these he issued that, a yeah. correction. What else did he get wrong? That kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I feel like you're going somewhere with this. So I'm, well, no, I'm happy it, to go there with you. It, I mean, uh, it, not so much in terms of me having a roadmap, but I suppose how would I put it? So I'll give you an example. Going back to your article in the Atlantic, mm-hmm. I agree with you that first of all, at least. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a published in mainstream journals guy, but writers don't choose their own titles a lot of the time. They may no. not decide where the paragraph breaks are. They may be subheaded, subheadings put in that mm-hmm. kind of give it a slightly spicier tone, and that may all be done by subeditors or editors. Mm-hmm. So sometimes people read an article and they think it's saying something or they think it's taking a tone, which is actually kind of added in or implied by something that the writer didn't necessarily intend. And so I think a kind of slightly more patient and generous way of reading in general is probably more helpful. Right. And and that's my personal view. And the reason I have that is because what I see is a, a tendency for a kind of combative tone, mm-hmm. uh, 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 exactly as you say, a kind of jumping on people, maybe not even if they misspeak, but because they hold a certain position, a kind of pile on mentality that, as you mm-hmm. say, these things have been around for a while. We've always had hysterias and mass panics and and public sentiment swinging one way or the other and this isn't new but the age of the internet has amplified these factors but i suppose where i sit is i i feel like maybe i am middle enough in terms of many of my views and opinions that i don't see it as a a malaise or a malady of only one quote side end quote Mm -hmm. um and so I think what I what I feel is that there's a kind of elevated sense of stakes that for whatever reason, especially over the past maybe five years, eight years, something like that, mm-hmm. it really does seem like when people write whatever it is, opinion pieces, essays, um, anything but like totally straight reporting, it's like they're fighting something as if they're afraid of what the consequences will be if this is not the hill they die on. And on the other hand, people who take the contra position will therefore be attacking the person. In a way, it's kind of taken on more of the atmosphere of a battle or a war rather than the atmosphere of a lot of people bound by curiosity, interest, and professional ethics trying very hard to find out what actually happened and making sure they tell it to people in the clearest language possible. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely like, there's definitely defensive writing. There's a lot of defensive writing. I mean, this has always been the case to a certain extent, but social media especially exacerbated that. I mean, I think that, um, and I say this as somebody who, you know, will screenshot and post a screenshot 
any time. But screenshotting, for instance, has, um, as I think, uh, is, is created a defensive mentality where it's like, you can't even trust, <laughs> you can't even trust that the context of all, everything that came before and after it in the piece um, is going to be allowed to stand on its own, is going to be allowed to color um, the, the thing that, that uh, is, is because somebody is just going to, you know, and I, I've even written, I forget what it was, but I wrote a thing, you know, not that long ago where I, I made a comment. I think it was in a newsletter. It was like, you know, I can, I can, I can, I can feel the, the cursor, you know, hovering over this paragraph and making a screenshot as we speak, because it's just like, you just know that somebody's going to just grab a line or a paragraph and they're going to put it in, uh, you know, on, on Twitter or Substack notes or, or whatever platform. Um, and, and they're going to be like, here it is pile on. And it, yeah, it, it, it's a really bad way to write. Um, uh, it's, it is, it, it, it changes, it changes the way that people write because then you have to be like each individual paragraph has to be as airtight as you can make it. But then you also have to be sort of absolute, not just that, but you also have to be, um, uh, uh, anticipating all of the different things that all of these different groups of readers are going to bring to a piece. And that's impossible. Like you can't, you can't know what every single person, um, or every single group. And, and sometimes, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll say something and you'll be like, you know, I'm airtight here. I'm, I'm making the case. I'm even, you know, taking, you know, this contrary position into account and you just, and there's this other position or whatever that just completely blindsides you. Um, it's, uh, it can be, it can be infuriating. Well, and it's a tactic that I don't see being a partisan issue. I think it's a tendency of people arguing with each other. And so parsing the point scoring, playing the man, not the ball stuff from good faith debate, which can be heated, which can be contentious and controversial and sometimes isn't clear. It can be a, a, gray area of responsibility and fault and humans are complicated it's not as simple as flicking a light switch to figure out what happened and 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 if you and if you and if you identify as somebody as being on your team or against your team in any given situation that will also color the things that they say and so if they say something you agree with you'd be like well they didn't mean that um or they meant they meant that, but it was but 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 it's 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 overwhelmed by by all of this other stuff. And then if they say something that you dislike, then it's off to the races. Well, and um, also yeah. there's a, in a way a kind of a framing issue as you brought it up. A, a good example, in a way, specific to the where we began our conversation. Mm-hmm. One of the responses to your article in the Atlantic. Mm-hmm was an open letter from I think over 200 people who were sub on Substack, so-called Substackers, right. um, who wrote and circulated an open letter called Substackers Against Nazis. Mm-hmm. And to me, while I understand that that's a very clear declarative title that stakes a claim to your position, right. I also felt that it was an example of the kind of thing I'm talking about which is that i don't sincerely believe Mm -hmm. that the people who for instance signed l griffin's open letter Mm -hmm. are substackers for nazis right but if one takes a position on an issue 
and says, you know, I'm I'm anti-fascist. Once you say that, anyone who's arguing with you is linguistically pro-fascist because they're against your anti-fascist position. Now, that doesn't make them that. And it doesn't make you anti-fascist either for calling yourself that. But it's a way of framing debate, which I feel plays into this kind of more heated, more adversarial, less productive way of talking to each other. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, what I can tell you is so and, 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 you know, to be fully transparent. So I didn't. I didn't create the Substackers Against Nazis. Oh no, I wasn't saying you movement. did at all. Yeah. But I did. I I posted it on my newsletter, um, and I was glad to see it. I was glad to see it, um, and I was you know in in touch with uh, Marissa Cabas, who is the 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 Substack writer. Uh, she's also since left the platform. Um, who who uh, you know was behind that effort. Um, so I'm I'm a, I'm I'm aware of the timeline of it. And I can tell you um, that that was that letter was done um, and was and was being rolled out before hmm. uh, the L. Griffin letter. Um, oh, that they were kind of simultaneous, maybe, or they were simultaneous from right. from the point from the point of view of of the people who, who sh- you know, or at least a lot of the people who shared the the Substackers Against Nazis letter. Um, that the 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 Al Griffin letter read as a kind of a pre bubble um, that they had sort of hmm. you know gotten out ahead of it. Um, part of the evidence of that is that so in the piece that Matt Taibbi wrote, um, in which he just you know <laughs> tried to, tried to have it out with me, um, uh, tire I think he called me a tireless busybody or something like that. Well, you know, um, I, I mean, I mean, and I, and, and I, so it was just really fast. So in yeah, that sure. in in that post, he talks about the fact that he was aware that there was an open letter that was in the works. Mm. So they knew about they knew about the open letter that, that the Substackers against Nazis were 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 doing. But I I I can I'm pretty sure I don't know what every single person who who ended up sharing the Substackers against Nazis letter knew. Um, but I, I didn't know until, until, uh, L's letter, um, or the letter on, on L's, um, uh, blog came out. Mm. I didn't know that there was going to be this competing letter, um, right, right. the day before. And it seemed like they, 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 they were very quick yeah, so to was try it, to get it, it out of the head. But that's so, so that, yeah. which is, this, which is to say, and I, and I, and I, I listened to, as, as you know, um, and as you noted, uh, the, the your interview with L, um, you know, I, I think she sort of implied or or said at some point that you know calling that that calling that letter the substackers substackers against nazis was a comment on her letter um but it wasn't it was right, it was right. a comment it was a comment on nazis <laughs> it, was, yeah, it, was, yeah. it was it was it was it was it was of it was course. building off of my reporting no and, and by the way I, I i that's good that's a good piece of additional context to have but in a way it's also and that's not I'm not saying people shouldn't have called it that I'm not right. shooting on anyone, but just going back to this point about how we speak to each other, how we write, how we try and elucidate the situation in the world around us. Yeah. I, again, like with Matt Taibbi, Matt, I, I've read Matt Taibbi for a long time. I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of his writing. I think he's a fantastic journalist. He's broken some great stories. He wrote one of my favorite phrases in the English language when he called Goldman Sachs a giant vampire squid on the face of humanity, jamming mm-hmm. his blood funnel into anything that smells like money. Mm-hmm. 
word poetry, mm-hmm. diamonds. Um, and he's also been very active working on issues around, I'm going to say censorship because that's mm-hmm. the simplest word for it, but mm-hmm. talking about what happened under the bonnet at Twitter and so forth. And so I think he's, and you, you called him out earlier saying that he, you know, he's kind of big time. He's testified in front of Congress, but in context, he testified in front of Congress specifically about yes. the censorship issue with the so-called Twitter files. He was asked to go there by a house committee and he was actually called a so-called journalist by one of the people who were on that committee who didn't like what he was saying. And while he was there, the IRS went to his house and left him a threatening letter, which made no sense because they actually owed him money. There's a, it's a very kind of muddy situation for him. So again, that's kind of what I mean. And that, that reporting it, that he was doing was he was he he was effectively given documents by a billionaire who was trying to create a narrative at the company that he had just bought. Yes, I mean, that that's, Ta- that's Taibbi has done good journalism before. I I I I you know he lost me at one point, but no, but that's that's fair enough. And no, but that's what I mean. Like I'm not I'm not anyone's PR agent or defender. I guess what yeah. I mean is, again, so for instance the. Elon Musk buying Twitter and releasing the Twitter files, right? Right. Yes, Elon Musk is a very wealthy man. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are um, implications of the policy that's happening at Twitter right now, which are worth discussing. I think it's something you mentioned actually in your article to do with censoring on behalf of Turkey and India. Right. But claiming the mantle of free speech. Right. And that is definitely a, a valid statement, but I don't know if it's an entirely fair characterization, only because I'd say Turkey and India, like China and other countries, mm-hmm. often force their own norms around what they permit to be shared in their country onto the companies that transact in their countries. So, in essence, it seemed like a kind of loaded statement because I'd rather have a country that was freer Mm. where people get to say stuff, even if it's nasty, but if that company is doing business in a more censorious country, they have to be a business and obey the rules of that country. Even though I don't like that, I don't like censorship. I don't like that idea. I think the idea that they should censor more because they do it elsewhere, I'm not saying that's what you were saying, but it's one right. of the kind of shadow parts of the 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 way it was written. But that's that, that's but but that's I mean, I, this is maybe getting a little off topic, but that's the heart of the critique of 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 the so-called Twitter files, right? Is that is that you had a government um, who, from the point of the view of Elon Musk and and the people behind the Twitter files, not all of whom were journalists for, for I mean, Michael Schellenberger has kind of become a journalist, but he describes himself as a PR professional um, and he's been a politician. He's, he's, he's sort of being more of a journalist now, I guess, than he has been. Mm. Um, I'm, not, I'm not defending the, the so-called journalist uh, uh, statement, but but in his case, I think it, it's, it, it is, is more appropriate than Taibbi's. But regardless... Um, you know the 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 critique of the Twitter files was that you had a government um, that was that was working with a social media platform, and so 
it, it's this, it's, it's, it's the same thing. I mean, except it's worse, right? Because, because in the case of the United States, um, you know, even, even in, in, in what the, the Twitter files showed, um, you know, it showed that they, they weren't, they, they weren't, uh, uh, you know, calling the shots. In fact, they were often very frustrated with Twitter for not doing what they wanted. Um, whereas in, in the case of, of Turkey and India and in particular, um, it seems like Elon just did what they wanted. No questions asked. At least until, at least until the next tranche of Twitter files comes out. But also, you know, this is, I mean, the Twitter files are from before Elon bought it over. No, I know. I know. I'm saying that, but uh, if if there's, if there's, if there's some, if, if somebody, if, if somebody, you know, uh, uh, you know, makes public his documents uh, the way that he sure. made the documents of, of of the previous Twitter owners. Public. Yeah, and and you know that he selected and or or that that he that he 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 handpicked people who he knew were going to tell a story that he wanted told, and and then made sure that they had access to pick whatever they wanted that went into the narrative that they wanted told, and that's that's essentially what comes out of the Twitter files. Can I ask you a genuine, like genuinely yeah, honest question? Yeah. If you had gotten that call, would you have gone? If I got a call from Elon Musk to work for, no. Not work for, not work for. If, if no. you'd gotten a call that just said, I've got a bunch of internal documents from Twitter and I want to give them to some journalists who can then interpret them and understand them and write about them as long as the first version of the story is released on Twitter and after that run with it to your heart's content. You no. wouldn't have. No, I don't think, I think, I think honestly I would have. If, if he was like, you know, I, I would have, I would have wanted a lot more guarantees of, of freedom of independence, including the, the ability to, to publish it wherever I wanted. Um, and well, I mean, they have been able to publish afterwards. It was only, right. I think the first the, the, I, as far as I'm aware, the only condition was the first story from each batch of documents should be released on Twitter in the initial round. But since then, I think they've been running with it on their own sub stacks or I would have, I would have also asked myself a question, which I, which I ask anytime somebody comes mm. to me with information. It's like, why are you, why are you coming to this with, why me? Like what, what, you know, because it's clearly there, there's often, there is often, um, you know, implicit in, 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 in choosing the journalist that you want to tell the story that you want told you are, you are doing so because you think that they are going to tell the story the way that you want it told. Um, but that's and, also true yeah. of, but that wouldn't that also be true for any journalist who receives a leak from say a white house staffer yes, or but a I CIA also, analyst yes. or something, but it's generally it's, just speaking personally is generally not the way I work. I, I, I generally don't right, information I that I get is generally not, you know, it's, it's generally not, not handed the, to me, not from for, the VIP area. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, when we were talking about Watergate, I mean, it's really interesting, like, you know, um, the degree to which, and this only became uh, a common knowledge very late in life, once once the source known as Deep Throat, uh, Mark Felt, was was uh, uh, unmasked, um, it, really, it really comes out the extent to which Bob Woodward's reporting in particular was access journalism, that it was that that it was a that it was a, a a a highly placed source in a government agency um sharing information for his own purposes. And then the other people did other reporting. Um and you've seen that in, in Bob Woodward's career. So I don't mean to be shitting on Bob Woodward, but like but like Bob Woodward's career since like the things that he has done since Watergate 
they tend to be access journalism. They tend to be, you know, he is welcomed into, you know, George W. Bush's uh, White House or the Supreme Court or whatever. Um, and, you know, there's a value to that. It's That's not generally what I do. Um, I'm not somebody who... I don't. I don't generally get a call from somebody who's like, um, uh, you know, I'm. I am the CEO of this company. Um, I've got all of my predecessors' emails, and uh, would you would would you like them? Um, because because in in and part of the reason I don't work that way, and I'm being really honest here, like part of the reason I and some people do. I mean, there are good journalists who do. Um, Bob Woodward is is one of them. But um, uh, part of the reason I don't work that way is because. Yeah, I it, it it's a it's a mode of work that makes you beholden, um, whether you like it or not, in a lot of ways, to the person who is giving you the, the the access. Because if you report something that they don't want, your access is cut off, or they will undercut you, or they will give it to your competition, or whatever, and you will you will just feel, you know, you you will feel the 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 impulse um, to 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 some extent, um, tell a story that they are happy with. Um, and I agree so, with you. I, 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 you. I, I don't, I don't like working that way. So I don't, I don't think, but also it doesn't matter because he wouldn't have called me, but I, but, but, <laughs> but, no, but, I, but I, 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 yeah, I agree with your point and your concerns about access journalism. And I think in a way, going back to this question of how we, we as a kind of community of people, on this planet trying to understand reality as accurately as possible. I'd like to believe that's ultimately our shared goal. Mm-hmm. I don't mean just you and I, but I'm speaking yeah. in a general sense. Yeah. You know, th- that criticism you just made of that type of journalism, mm-hmm. you know who else I've heard make that uh, case very forcefully, very eloquently, and very passionately? Matt Taibbi. Yeah. Well, and, Matt, and, yeah. And, and and so the point and, and in a way this is kind of what I mean is going back to this question of trust, this question of where people get their information. Yeah. And I think I is, think he's yeah, I think he changed. I mean, this I don't I, this is not a I don't know I I don't want to get into like a No, sure, sure. Uh, I, 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 like I, a, like a long conversation about Matt Taibbi, but yeah, he yeah. I I don't think I don't think that that I don't think the Matt Taibbi of 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 20 or 10 years ago and the Matt Taibbi of, of today are necessary. I'm sure things have, things have remained constant, but people change. I change. I mean, everybody changes. Um, but, but I I don't, I mean, do you feel that you're, do you feel, I don't think, I don't think that, I don't think the Matt Taibbi of 2008 would have, would have taken an invitation from a billionaire to, um, to, to tell a story on his platform using documents that he was fed. I, I don't, I mean, I don't, I, I have never, I don't think I've ever actually met Matt Taibbi in person. We've had interactions online, um, but I don't think he would have done that, but maybe he would. And he can speak for himself. I, I, I don't, sure. this is, I, I feel like I, we're getting off topic. No, no, exactly. So, I mean, to return to maybe something more tightly in, in the wheelhouse, yeah. I suppose it, when you look at the way you've developed as a journalist, the way that you've experienced pushback from organizations or right. uh, individuals in positions of influence. Mm-hmm. And as you say, we all change, we all develop. And in a way, I think that's also, that's something that comes up commonly is the you've changed man thing, mm-hmm. which is I'd rather have someone who 
develops and owns it then insists on a type of consistency that keeps them frozen in amber regardless sure, of what sure, they've sure, sure. learned in the intervening period uh, the hob the hobgoblin of little mind <laughs> so so i mean from your perspective how is what what you do changed in terms of the way you uh, choose stories, what you want to focus on and how you express it. Like we've talked about, right? That sometimes there is a type of internet voice. There's a type of writing yeah. that is now yeah. kind of required because of the tone of what gets published and who publishes it. Yeah. And it gets edited. As you say, editorial meetings, people have their own idea of what's appropriate. Mm -hmm. So from your perspective, when you think about how you've moved through the business and developed what's changed for you i mean i the things i i write are extremely different from the kinds of journalism that i was doing for instance in, in the eight years that i worked for the associated press which is a wire service still exists um and it's still big although it's shrinking shrinking like like everything else um you know when i was at ap you know there was like the word i never could have appeared in a story right i i uh, uh i i <laughs> Um, you know, when I would be in, in a situation, for instance, in Haiti, uh, there, there's an, you know, one example that, that I often, um, call to, well, basically anything that happened to me, it was, I would write about it in the third person if, if it was important enough to, to include in a story. Right. So if I, if I was covering a riot, um, as happened and, and, uh, I was robbed at, at, at a barricade, which I, which I was at one point, I, I wrote about it in the third person. I was like an associated press reporter had his Blackberry you know, stolen at a barricade at, at knife point or something like that. Um, and, and his hand is hurting while he is typing this. Yes. <laughs> Fortunately, my hand was fine, but yes, exactly. exactly. Um, uh, you know, things like that. Right. Um, and it, and you know, it was, there was also a sort of, um, I mean, certainly, you know, there was a kind of defensive writing in a way, but it wasn't defensive against like, you know, online sparring. It was defensive against, you know, um, you know, the, the, the parties of a story, you know, you're making sure the material make, facts. Yeah. yeah making well, not just that, but just like making sure that like we included, you know, the point of view of, you know, a, a, a person who was, you know, who, you know, even if an investigation showed, even, you know, even the UN, you know, the, the, my evidence shows that the UN is, is, is likely responsible for this, uh, cholera outbreak. Here's the UN's response, right? You had to, you had to have it in there. Right. But it's different now. Like, you know, the, um, you know, I've, I've, I've I'm, I'm much more of a poster, um, after, you know, t t t whatever it's been 14 years of social media poisoning, um, <laughs> Uh, it's metastasized. Yeah, and also, I mean, the things I write. I I used to be a beat reporter, um, even when I was a, you know when I was a foreign correspondent. Um, it, it, you know, uh, when I was in Israel during the Second Intifada, um, one of my first gigs actually at AP. Um, you know, I was covering that. <laughs> uh, when I was in Haiti, uh, you know, I was covering. Um, I was you know I was very very intense. Obviously, I've lived in Port-au-Prince. I was very intense on the Haiti story and whatever was happening in Haiti. That was my beat. Um, and I had sources who were placed, uh, you know, who I cultivated and I would go out and I would observe things and, 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 you know, that was my focus. Whereas now, um, you know, it, as has sort of developed, especially over the last, you know, five years, 
since I started doing my newsletter. Um, first of all, it's much more of like an like a personal like opinion section um, of the things I write are much more kind of like op-eds. Um, I also write actual op-eds. That's a thing I would have never done as a reporter uh, back in the day. Um, uh, and that allows me to be more opinionated. Um, it allows me to, to, you know, um, uh, you know, offer, offer things that I, that, you know, I, I, I try to be well-sourced. I try to, to have all my facts in, in order. Um, I make a very great effort too. And, and, and this piece, the, the, the piece that, that brings me here today, um, contrary to some, uh, intimations and in some cases direct statements that have been made online it was rigorously fact-checked um by the atlantic's fact check team and even before it gets to the atlantic's fact check team i am a i am an obsessive self-fact checker um i can tell you you know for instance uh in in my books um my publishing houses don't hire fact checkers um i hire them out of my own pocket for gangsters of capitalism i hired four fact checkers uh, which was not cheap uh, because, and, 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 and I gave them, you know, really good ones. Um, one of whom was, is, is one of the, the head research editors, of the New York times magazine before that he was at the, at the New Yorker. And I gave them, you know, very specific marching orders, like destroy this book, you know, find every weak point, find anything that might be, you know, some kind of unintentional plagiarism, anything, Anything that I get wrong here, fight me on it. <laughs> um, and there were fights with my own fact checkers who I was paying. Um, that's how that's how I operate. And and to, you know to, you know uh, uh, you know that I think hasn't changed. Um, but you know what I do with those facts, you know, I'm I'm then able to sort of you know make arguments which you know 10, 15 years ago maybe closing cl closing in on on 15 years ago now i would have been allergic to doing like like you know coming out in a story and and saying that you know you know this guy is is you know th this haitian politician is is very dangerous um you know just sort of as my as my opinion right that's something i wouldn't have done and, and you know that that's changed because of social media it changed in a lot of ways um uh, because of the Trump years, um, because, you know, with Donald Trump, um, as, as a journalist, I was faced with somebody who it was very obvious to me very much from the beginning of his first candidacy in 2015. And I cannot believe that we are in the middle of his third candidacy. That is crazy to me. Um, you know, it was very obvious to me what was going on, that this guy was trafficking in open racism, that he was, that he was, uh, uh, selling himself as an authoritarian who, you know, he, I alone, as he said at the, at the Republican national convention in 2016, um, you know, can fix it. Uh, you know, that, that it was that, 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 that was what we were dealing with here. And a lot of my colleagues in the press still to this day, a lot of my colleagues in the press, um, you know, back, back then there were huge fights over, like, if we could say that he was lying, right. People would be like, well, we don't know what's in his heart. Maybe he just, maybe he thinks these things are true. And so we can't call them lies. And it's like, I think we can call them lies because either, either he knows he's lying in a lot of cases, or he doesn't because he's not bothering to check 
But regardless, we know that this isn't true. So let's just call it a lie and 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 just be clear about that. And things like that, you know, in 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 ways, you know, sort of push me to a a more um, gr- aggressive, more more opinionated, um, kind of you know Matt Taibbi, <laughs> you know, t- type of writing um, than I was doing before. One of the reasons that I I really admired Taibbi over the, you know back back when I was sort of a a, a straight news reporter. Um, was because I would have loved to be able to, 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 you know, to write, I don't know about that line in particular, but, you know, things like the vampire squid, you know, line, right? Um, and, you know, uh, you know, I, I couldn't, I, like, I would have gotten fired. <laughs> not, not just, not just because I would have, have, have been, you know, you know, engaging in, you know, uh, ad hominem attacks or whatever, um, but just because it's it's not the kind of writing that that AP does. AP would just be like, you can do that kind of writing, but you just have to go somewhere else to do it. Um, and and I always I, I always really admired people who could do things like that. And and now I am I'm I'm doing that to to a much greater extent. I, other ways in which I've changed are, you know, I, I doubt very many people who are listening to this are very familiar with my work. But if they are and they've been reading me for many years, maybe they can tell me other ways in which I've changed that I'm not uh, uh, cognizant of. But um, those are those are some examples. Well, I, I'm really grateful for you sharing that as openly as you did, because in a way, I suppose that's part of what has come up earlier mm-hmm. when I was talking about um, a more adversarial bent in the way reporting is done. In a way, a, a greater sense of mission among a lot of journalists in terms of what they think they're trying to achieve with what they say and what they publish. Yeah. And when we talk about the question of trust, I, I guess that's also something that comes in here as you brought up the, the Trump years. Mm-hmm. And it, I'd say it would be disingenuous to ignore mm-hmm. that 2016 feels like an inflection point. Right. Oh, yeah. That, that after 2016 with Trump and Brexit and the kind of few years we had between that and the pandemic, mm-hmm. it definitely felt like there was a kind of gloves off moment where suddenly to the extent that objectivity was ever a real and meaningful outcome, mm-hmm. it was previously ethically encouraged and I think that's a reasonable point. Um, and I, th- I feel like we shifted, as you described for yourself, yeah. into a more subjective mode, however understandably on a personal level. Right. But for many people, myself included, what that shift did do is perhaps affect the level of trust that's instinctively possible when you know someone is writing from a passionate, personally convictioned place. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah, the- I mean, my, yeah. So I, you know, my, my ideas about objectivity have, have also changed over the course of, of, of my career. Um, and a lot of that actually has more to do uh, with my experience as a foreign correspondent um, because I found myself. So, you know, my, my, you know, I, reported from I'm, I'm American I reported from the United States and um, 
before I went overseas um, for the longest stint, um, I was in Israel and Palestine um, uh, before I, I then came back and then I reported from, from Capitol Hill, first for Congressional Quarterly and then for the Associated Press. Um, and broke actually a, a, a fairly big story at the time that um, the, the then Senate Majority Leader um, Bill Frist had sold off all of his family's stock or all of his stock in his family's hospital company um, right before a major price decline um, in preparation for a uh, presidential run. This seemed like a big story at the time because he was ex- he was considered the the front runner for the Republican uh, presidential nomination in 2008, um, which people today would say. Bill who? Um, and but, and wait, are, are we are we not allowed to be nostalgic for a time when insider <laughs> trading by members of Congress was considered was controversial? I know, I know, I know, I know. That's really yeah. Um, but then I but then I moved overseas, and one of the things was that being you know reporting from uh, especially in Latin America and especially in Haiti, um, I was expected to not necessarily sit in judgment but to follow the facts wherever they led especially when it came to talking about the haitian government in a way that when talking about american politics you were much more expected to the the mode of objectivity or what people considered objectivity was much more of what has since been termed both sidesism Right. That if, when, if sorry, just just real quick. When you say yeah. expected, you mean mm-hmm. by your editors or you mean by men? By editors or? and also by audiences, right? Because oh, okay. it was like, you know, if you said if you said uh uh the Republicans are telling the truth and the Democrats are lying in this instance, then that was then that is considered not objective by 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 sort of the, the, the American rules of the game and by from American perspective. Right. That 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 seems like partisan journalism. Right. Um, Whereas when reporting on another country, um, people don't care because I'm I'm reporting for a global audience. I'm reporting for especially an American audience with AP. Um, People don't care about internal Haitian politics. I, I feel fairly confident that you probably can't name any Haitian political parties, which is not your, it's not a, a moral failing on your part. You just don't know anything about it, which is fine. Like there's a lot, it's a big world out there. So like the idea that the idea that, you know, I would, you know, uh, be, you know, it's like, Oh, you seem like you're, seems like you're, you're really, you know, in the tank for, 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 uh, Inite, um, instead of instead of Peashtika, right? It's like it's not a thing that like anyone's gonna care about, right? Um, and and so I was much more expected to just be like, well, what what are the like what are the what are the facts, man? Like what's 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 happening here? Um, and I followed that. I took that. You know, I I I I, I took that and ran with it. Um, and we've, I've, we've brought up a million times here, but like, you know, the, certainly with, with regard to the earthquake, um, I didn't get the earthquakes, uh, comment on, on the, on the, the hundred thousand to 316,000 people that they killed. Um, the tectonic plate was unavailable. The, the tectonic plate was the, 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 the North American plate was unavailable for comment because it was sliding <laughs> under the Caribbean. Um, uh, but then, you know, even, you know, f- throughout that year and, and throughout like the reporting that I was doing in Haiti in general, um, I just reported, you know, uh, uh, 
I just reported critically on on NGOs. I reported critically on the UN with the cholera epidemic. I reported very critically on Bill Clinton. Um, one of sort of the moments in which I uh, realized that perhaps I had been in Haiti too long and and uh, was was a little burned out, but also it's kind of a mode that I've just been ever since, was I when I interrupted Bill Clinton at one of his own press conferences in Haiti. Um, <laughs> because he, I asked a question and he started answering it and I just interrupted him. I was like, that's not what I asked. <laughs> like you're... <laughs> <laughs> and everyone else like kind of turned around and I was like, he's stop lying to me, man. Like, it's like, you know, um, and, and, and so, so, you know, it was, it, it was a different vision. I, th there's different ways to talk about it. You know, to a certain extent, I, I came to reject neutrality. I came to reject, um, uh, I came to reject both sidesism. Um, but I became much more committed to following the facts wherever they led, um, regardless of who it pissed off. And regardless, honestly, of the uh, professional or, or financial implications for me. And I think that for me, again, this may sound crazy. I don't even know who's still listening to this podcast at this point. But like, but like it may sound crazy, but like, you know, so many people have accused me. Uh, in writing this piece of like, oh, I did it for clout. Oh, I did it for money. I and I did get paid for the article. To to be perfectly fair, I didn't get paid like a ton. I didn't get paid an amount that's going to offset the the number of 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 subscriptions and the growth that I'm losing from 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 leaving Substack. And I don't know if we have time, but I can talk about the reasons because it wasn't it wasn't just the Nazi thing. And and in fact, that was in in, in some ways uh, subordinate um, to to the reasons that I left the platform. Um, but I, 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 I shit, I shot where I ate. Like, I, like I, 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 I don't, I, I, I don't care because I, because it's, it's it, the only way that I know how to work is, is I, if I, if I find information and I think it's interesting and I think that it is in any way productive to report on it, um, in a, in a, in, in kind of a pro-social sense. Um, I'm gonna do it, even if it makes me look bad, even if it even if it hurts my bottom line, even if it means that I can't work at the places that I've been working. I mean, just to use another example, um, you know, one of the first pieces that I did on my Substack, and I think the one one of the ones that went um, uh, viral early on was I reported, I, like I did a piece in in my Substack about the ways in which the New York Times. Um, through some very shoddy reporting, um, had uh, created um, the the illusion of support uh, for uh, the notion that Donald Trump um, was wasn't just making shit up when he said that there were very fine people on both sides in Charlottesville, right? And I called out. In my newsletter, um, uh, Jeremy Peters and uh, and and the New York Times in general, because they had they had engaged in what I considered to be and what I found to be shoddy and incomplete reporting that created a false impression. At that time, my principal employer I was I was not I did not work for them, but as a freelancer, the my principal client essentially was the New York Times. I mean, for years, I was effectively 
you know, like the New York Times is, uh, you know, North Carolina correspondent. Um, and because I, I, I was there a lot and, and, and reporting from there a lot. And, you know, I, I don't think I don't think it was it was just that. Um, I don't think it was just that uh, reporting, but but sort of the cumulative effect of me calling out the New York Times and their reporting failures um, in my newsletter and on my social media account has had the effect that I don't really write very much for the New York Times anymore. And and I can't, I don't know, I'm sure that my family would rather that I had made different decisions about things like that. But I just, I can't, I can't operate any differently. It's the only way that I know how to operate. The only way I know how to operate as a journalist is to learn information, synthesize it, and whether I'm doing it in a straight news story or I'm doing it in, in, in a, a more opinionated piece, like put it out to the world without fear or favor, to use another journalistic cliche. And again, I'm sure people are going to be listening to this and being like, you're completely full of shit, cats. Like, what, what, what are you talking about? But if I'm full of shit, then I'm bullshitting myself because this is how I think I work. And it, and, and it is, and, and, and I, and to me, this story that we're here talking about is another example of it because all it did was make enemies for me uh, uh, on Substack. It certainly did nothing to ingratiate myself to the Substack leadership who run a social network in which they make editorial decisions about who to promote, who to ratchet up, who to, who, you know, who to, who to recommend to, to people and who not. And ultimately, I decided really on, on just like my own personal ethical grounds um, that I couldn't be on Substack anymore. For which I am knowingly taking a financial hit because the Substack network effect, which wasn't in place in the first couple of years that I was on Substack, does fuel a lot of growth. Um, and I have I have no doubt that I am going to have fewer subscribers um, in a year um, than than I would have if I had stayed on the platform. And 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 other people are are looking at the same information that I am, they maybe even agree with me. They agree with my position that, that, that it's, that, that it is, it's, you got to call out and it is not good to have like actual like national socialist Nazis um, on, on, on a, on, on, uh, you know, a newsletter platform or being promoted by, or, 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 or in, in, in the case of, of, of what Hamish McKenzie did that really shot him in the, in the foot. Um, and this was just a complete unforced error on his part coming out with a statement in which he just said, like, we don't like Nazis, but they are welcome on our platform, which is something that no other social media organization, not even Elon Musk, who who reinstated the accounts of no neo-Nazis, not even he was like, I think it's important to have Nazis on my platform. Like, Hamish McKenzie said that, it created headlines, it created a very bad uh, effect. I got a lot of unsubscriptions and other people did as well, um, you know. I stirred that pot. I am I'm dealing with the consequences of that, but I don't care because I think I think that it is important enough to note that there is a a a real and and pervasive um issue and that I I I thought that it was important enough to 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 do that even though I think that ultimately it probably didn't win me a ton of friends um and it isn't going to make me a lot of money in in the long run. It's actually going to cost me money in 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 the short and medium term something that seems to be at the heart of a lot of the contentiousness around conversations about who should be on a platform, who should mm -hmm. be heard, who shouldn't be heard. It's 
it can be reduced to calling it a free speech issue, but mm. it also ties in with things that have come up during our conversation about trust, about mm -hmm. people speaking to each other across the lines of disagreement. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, also we see worldwide a ramping up of government rules around what is being classed as hate speech or misinformation and so right. on. And I suppose to me, besides my own personal feelings about freedom of speech, which mm. probably veer towards the absolutist, mm. there's also the fact that it seems like the best way of getting people to trust in the ecosystem in which they're receiving their information. Mm. And, and so, for example, it, is it better that Nazis only meet in a basement under a warehouse by the docks where nobody knows they're there or how many people are there? Mm. Or is it better that they have a list of subscribers on a database and everyone can go and see what they're saying to each other? And so, for example, like with the way we began and now moving towards wrapping up, mm. it, shining a light on the fact that extremism, unsavory opinions, outright racism and other stuff is there and is mm -hmm. present and is concerning and people who feel that way and think that way and speak that way mm -hmm. it's it's unpleasant to know that it's out there especially if you're a member of one of the groups that they dislike it can be scary it's uncomfortable mm -hmm. and it's can be downright disgusting mm. and maybe i'm being naive but mm. I still don't feel like any of that is a reason for it to be gone, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And I, I'm not saying that because I think it's an easy thing to say. Um, I don't think it's a black and white issue. But right. there, to me, there, it, there, it kind of we approach a bright line where mm. countries that tend to be dangerous for the most vulnerable or for the people who are dissenting against the majority opinion or the government. Yeah. Countries that are dangerous in that way tend to be countries that limit what can be said and determine what the acceptable parameters of debate are, mm. and also sometimes even determine what is true or mm. what constitutes acceptable facts rather than unacceptable facts, right? Right, right. And it seems to me to be approaching worldwide a situation where there is a growing, often very emotional, often understandable from a certain perspective, dislike for so much of what goes on and gets said and causes distress to people mm -hmm. that we risk crossing a line from which we don't walk back easily into yeah. a, a situation where real power, the power that's enforced by military and police and the machinery of the state real power gets to determine what people can and cannot say. And right. so in a way, I think maybe some of the pushback and negativity you've received might be from people who, even if that wasn't your intention, kind of accuse you of being the thin end of a wedge. Of course. The, the end, the other end of which is this thing I'm talking about. Right. And I don't think that concern is ill-founded, even if the way it's expressed to you or blaming you as if you're somehow in cahoots with some agenda right. is off-base. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. 
I mean, I can I can respond to a couple different ways. So first of all, I think it's very important to 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 sit in the discomfort and the ambiguity of all this because this is very very difficult. These are very very difficult questions. Um, I mean, just to use an example, and I, I believe this is a case that you're familiar with of Rwanda, right? Um, I mean, that's a situation where you had, um, you know, mass media. Uh, directly uh, sparking, uh, perpetuating, and giving marching orders to a genocide. Um, then that genocide ends. Everybody who's dead is dead, is not coming back. Um, may they rest in peace. And um, the Kagame government comes into power. And then sort of on the pretense, and maybe, maybe pretense is, is to... Uh, uh, unfair word like they are they're 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 basing this on real things that really happened with you know uh, uh, Radio Mikulin and, and and things like that but then they use that to then suppress speech that is critical of Kagame who becomes a dictator effectively um, or is a, at least is a, a, a unaccountable authoritarian president um, and uh, to the extent that you know and and uh, you know people have written about this at length. You know, even getting real information about the genocide in Rwanda is difficult because speech is so narrowly constrained um, that even true facts about the genocide, right, which is perpetrated by the victims of the genocide were, to a great extent, the people who are in power now, they they are, they, because of, of fears of, you know, whatever they call it, genocidal ideation or division or, or whatever, um, divisiveness, uh, they 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 try to you know they, uh, they restrict you know even talking about like you know uh, ethnic or supposed ethnic differences within the Rwandan uh, body politic um, in a way that makes it very difficult to even talk about like what happened right so that's that's just like a case where and that's just an example of a case where like what the hell do you do with that right because like on the one <laughs> Like on the one hand, and like I, I can tell you, like I, I, I'm, I'm familiar with some of the discourse around it. Um, you know, I know that you know some people. Like I, I was reading a, a thing that was like fire freedom of whatever it is. Um, uh, I forget Foundation what for Individual Rights and Expression. Greg Lukianoff. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Um, you know, fire. Uh, I wrote a thing. I read this a, a, a little while ago. So if I'm if I'm misremembering it, uh, uh, please correct me or forgive me. But I, but I you know he he I, they 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 made a point that was sort of like you know well but like what Radio Milkolin did was like it wouldn't have passed the Brandenburg test right Re referring to the Supreme Court case um, in which you know speech could only be uh, uh, prohibited by the American state. Um, if there is an, an like, if they're fighting words that mean an imminent threat of like specific violence against specific individuals, like in in the Brandenburg case, like not even just sort of like you know, because Brandenburg the guy is just, I don't remember exactly what he was basically just sort of like you know we we, we must kill like blacks and Jews, but they were like it like in 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 the case of Rwanda, like they were like and this is the address of these are the names of the people and and so fire is saying like you know well you know this. This this isn't really even a question of, of of freedom of speech because Brandenburg would hold. But of course, at that point, 
Now you're getting into, well, Brandenburg is itself, like if you're talking about free speech absolutism, like Brandenburg, if you're a real free speech absolutist, like 100%, then even Brandenburg should be too far for you because then, then, you're, then, you're, then you're against anybody saying anything, right? All I'm trying to say here, and, and maybe I, people are going to accuse me, uh, see, I'm, I'm talking defensively here. Maybe people are going to accuse me of, of, of uh, being intentionally obfuscating or obtuse or, or talking around this issue. But this, these, are, these are very, very complicated issues. Right. Talk about Nazis on suspects specifically. Talk about the thing that we're actually talking about here. Right. The actual Nazis, the Nazis qua Nazis. Right. The 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 the, the clicking heels, swastika sporting Nazis, um, and even sort of like the larger uh, group of you know just sort of um, white supremacists and people who are are or, or, or people who are part of neo Nazi movements. Um, even though they don't have swastikas on their on their substack, um, but they're very clearly identified, and we know who they are. I talk about some of them in in the Atlantic piece because they were in Charlottesville. They're defendants in Signs v. Kessler, the the, the case against against the, the the perpetrators of of, of Unite the Right. Um, you know, in those cases, like they what they want ultimately, what that what that um uh political tendency once um is to become an authoritarian um super state in which they get to decide what everybody else says and who is suffered to live and 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 who can be killed at will and this is a, this is a very famous issue and there are different people you know, Karl Popper there's different people with different opinions about this about like so what do you do if you know the people who are trying to use free speech you know, uh, 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 claims of free speech are trying to use that as a thin wedge to get themselves in. And especially given the fact that, you know, that it is very clear to me that there is a large and powerful authority. I'm not saying that Donald Trump is a Nazi. Okay. I am saying that there, there is within the Republican party, First of all, he's an authoritarian who wants to be a singular authoritarian, and there is a large and growing wave of people with a various spectrum of authoritarian ideas that go all the way to, you know, Ron DeSantis's campaign having these underground videos that were made by and approved by the campaign that included Nazi iconography, right? So, like, that's real, right? So that's 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 a thin wedge of its own. I don't know. I don't know the answer in in a in a broader societal sense, right? About whether you know the answer to that is. I, I feel like it is not criminalizing speech. I I I I I, I think that I am. I think that I am an, uh, 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 you know, maybe this is my bias as an American or my bias as a journalist who who, who grew up really like revering the the, the First Amendment, um, but like I don't see that as an answer, right? But I do think that it is a lot more within the realm of conversation if we're talking about a platform, a platform like Substack, not allowing itself to be used 
as a fundraising tool and also as a dissemination tool, not just because it is using sort of the power of the internet or, or, or you know, Twitter-like powers to, to, to just like put stuff out there in the ether, but, there, but, but it, is, it is email delivery. It is, it is infrastructure to create mailing lists and disseminate views. And like, yeah, Nazis like have a right to talk and 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 you know you say like it's better to have them out in the open first of all um like i don't know the extent to which they're out in the open i mean one of the criticisms and i know that l griffin made this criticism of my piece on on your uh, podcast she was like well i wouldn't have even known that these people exist uh if jonathan katz hadn't found them which first of all i don't think that just because you don't know something exists doesn't mean it doesn't exist and just because you didn't know it exists doesn't mean that it's not important but also that kind of that kind of obviates your 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 point because like a lot of people just didn't know that they were out there until i shone a light on it like you in 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 that interview you know you used the louis brandeis um line you know that the sun sunlight is is the best uh disinfectant and he goes on to talk about publicity like I'm bringing like that. That was what my piece was doing. I was bringing sunlight into a cor- into into a, a a a dank corner of Substack and shining a light on it. Um, and I don't. We we could talk about the the origins of that of that idea and and its limits. But like regardless, like insofar as it's a thing, like that's what I was doing. And the other thing is, and I you know this also goes into even. Uh, you know, one's reverence to, uh, for or absolutism for the First Amendment. There are, and I and I talk about this in 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 the Atlantic piece, um, and and since it is a Substack has a First Amendment right to allow anything on its platform that it wants, and to disallow anything on its platform that it wants, because th- this is th- there there's supreme there's Supreme Court cases. There was a, a famous one involving the Miami Herald in, in the 1970s. Where the state of Florida tried to mandate that the that the that the Miami Herald publish a response to a, an op-ed, I believe it was, and the Supreme Court said, "No, you can't do that. You can't force a publication to print anything, um, because that is its First Amendment right. It's its right of free speech. It's its freedom of the press. It is its freedom of association." Well, that's that's so, compelled speech, right? So it's, essentially, compelling yeah. speech is as unfree as restricted speech. Exactly. So, like, so you know, in the case of of Substack, um, and again, I'm 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 going back to sort of my, my my initial ambiguities. I don't know what to do with all this stuff. Some of these cases are just so obvious that I think it's just obvious. And even Substack, after coming out and making a statement that ended up with a, a headline in the New York Times that had the word Substack and Nazi next to it, uh, each other, where it was basically Substack welcomes Nazis, right? Even after that, Substack then had to backpedal and be like, well, these guys, and it was five sites, right? But they were like, even, well, okay. So there are five sites that are like, yeah, yeah it's pretty bad. Pretty bad. Okay, I get that. I get now where you're coming from. So, like, even they had to be like that. Then there's other things that are just sort of like, yes, well, you're trafficking anti-Semitism. You have a huge uh, uh, subscriber base. Um, you're making a bunch of money, or you are literally Richard Spencer, and you have a Substack bestseller badge, or you are literally a front for a neo, a no neo-Nazi group that also has a, a Substack bestseller badge. Like, what do you do with that? I don't know. I don't have a good answer. I do not have a good answer. But what I do know is that talking about it in terms, I, I, I just think that like in, in terms of sort of the narrow case that you're making, 
that it's better to know where they are, that it's better to know who they are. I I don't agree because I don't think, first of all, that putting the power of a of, of a of a platform behind them is necessary. I don't think allowing them uh, uh, to 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 make money um, is necessary. I don't think that I, I I don't see an argument in which like yeah, well, but I mean the, yeah, the making yeah. money thing. Sorry, I don't mean to cut yeah, you yeah, off, ahead, but just ahead. to kind of to to step into what you were saying. Yeah. I think that the making money angle, it it goes to places that may seem like it's a slippery slope argument, but I don't believe it's disingenuous. Mm -hmm. Before there was an internet, there were newsletters. Yeah. Newsletters that were printed on paper that was bought from stores. Yeah. Printed in printers shops that yeah. sold the service that they did. Sent through the post in envelopes that were bought from stationary stores using stamps that were bought from the post office. It, you, you know, you know what else Nazis use electricity? Yeah. They wear shoes. Yes. So, you know, it, it's, I, I just, I find it for me, it's a queasy thing when we begin to think about the idea that essentially making money from fellow citizens who hold unacceptable opinions should be socially unacceptable and or legally prevented. I'm not saying you're taking that position, but I don't I'm think it should be, I don't think it should be illegal. I just don't think that, I don't think that it should be that, that, that I don't, let me put it this way. I don't think it should be illegal at all. I don't think that I just don't want to be associated with right, right, a, right. A, a platform that says you can do it here. Right. Like, like it's, it's, it, it's, it's one thing to, you know, make your own server, put your own email list together, send your email out to people and, and they can Venmo you money, whatever. Like if you want to do that, that's fine. And also there are other platforms out there that, that, that allow that sort of thing. Substack is, is one of them very explicitly now. Um, but, but like Substack and Beehive yeah. that you switch to may very well share something like AWS, which is the back end for yes. a lot of internet yes. companies. Yes. This is what I mean. It's a kind of yeah. once we go, and I'm not suggesting that you haven't thought of that or that yeah. you're, you're yada yada that, but yeah. just when, that's what I mean. When we really open up that can of worms, when we really walk through that door, mm -hmm. it just feels a lot like a kind of. And, and again, I'm not putting this on you. It's my right. impression. Right. A kind of social credit thing. You know? So a loaded term, but yes. Yeah, yeah that's I, what I, I, mean. I, I I use it advisedly yeah. in the sense that what I mean by it is a situation in which the social acceptability and the general public or government approval of one's behavior and statements and yeah. actions begins to govern the degree to which you can actually live your life in society and interface with society economically and autonomously. Right. I, I think that once we open that can of worms, once we walk through that door, we are really not making a different argument to that. We're just talking about degree, not framework. If you see what I mean, because to I don't think, yeah, yeah sorry, to a on. certain extent, but I mean, there are other there are other ways there are other ways of, of, of looking at this and talking about it. I mean, it's you know if putting yourself out there as a platform on which Nazis, literal Nazis. I mean, and Hamish said this right. 
literal Nazis are welcome to grow their email lists, monetize, make money. That is a, that is a message to other people, including people who Nazis victimize, that maybe you're not welcome here. Um, and maybe maybe Substack isn't saying like you know you as a trans person, you as a, a a person of color, whatever, you as a Jewish person, like you can't come here and 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 do the same thing, but you just might not feel welcome on it. You might you might feel and 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 your subscriber base or your potential subscriber base may not feel welcome uh, uh, supporting you. And, and part of the reason is because, it's not just it's not just that these are competing ideas and competing worldviews. Like the thing that and the reason why we, we the reason why Nazis and, and free speech intersect in, in these conversations so often is because it is such a strong and very clear uh, example of a a a violently illiberal worldview whose whose ultimate goal is is mass murder or at least the 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 forcible legal exclusion using the resources of the state of people with whom it disagrees or with whom it thinks shouldn't exist or or, or shouldn't exist within within the country in, in in which they they find themselves and once you and 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 the problem is and this is why and this is why it's such fertile ground for for debate and like what do you do with that like the problem is that like when once you and and as a social network, so, so, Substack is a social network. They have recommendation features. They have a they have a Twitter clone. They they make recommendations. They have their own podcast. They have their own newsletters in which they 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 they, they recommend places. Once you have that infrastructure saying, we think that we should both have. <laughs> We, like we should have people who like write about croqueting, and we should also uh, 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 we we should also we should also uh, have people who who want to to murder all Jews, and like at that point, people like, who read people who read Knitting Weekly also right. read Death to the Jews. Right, you can't like those two things can't exist in the same place. They can't. You don't think so? No. That's I I you know I suppose that's really, I, I in a way I guess. It, well, the knitting, like, yes, but like, but like, because you can well, have I mean, Nazi it, knitters, yeah, yeah. right? But like, but like, but what I'm saying, what I'm saying is, but, but crochet but like, patterns what, for knitted yeah. swastikas, yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying is that like, it, like, at a certain point, at a certain point, you you, you, you have to choose, and I don't think I do. I, I like when I say in the same place, we're talking about we're talking about a, a, a platform. Like I'm not talking about in a society. Like it within a society, you know, the pro- the problem is it's it's when it's when that it's when that a liberal authoritarian fascist uh, uh, group gains enough purchase, gains enough numbers, gains enough uh, material, and uh, uh, with an e right, <laughs> like uh, enough armament, enough political power that they can actually start putting some of their views into practice. At that point, you can't have both, right? Like, like if, 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 we're, if, we're, if we're talking about like actual like Nazi Germany, right? Or like pre-Nazi Germany. Like, you mean it, an like, ideology that gains enough momentum and backing that it can capture all of the institutions and mechanisms that would otherwise protect people from it and it becomes yeah. impossible to coexist. Yeah. 
with because at that point at that, at that point you do, at that point you don't have a liberal society anymore but that was also true for example of the bolshevik takeover in russia that became communist yes. russia and the soviet yes. union yes it was the case in yes many countries with various dictatorships not all of which would be characterized as right wing right yes but sure. all of whom in a way and this is the beauty of orwell's work and right. the the reason behind the name um in part they obeyed certain mechanical or structural similarities. Yes. No, I mean, there, there's a reason why Hannah Arendt coined the term totalitarianism to, to, to basically describe both, both Stalin and Hitler because they had a lot in common and they were allies for a while and they jointly invaded Poland. Um, yeah, no, I mean, this is, yes, of course, of course. Um, but that, well, but, I guess what I yeah. mean is by bringing that up, it's not, and again, it's not to tar with a broad brush, but simply mm-hmm. to say that there are a number of organizations that speak either openly and um, passionately about their alignment with, say, for example, communist ideas or Marxist ideas, mm-hmm. all of which in their way, if taken to the same logical conclusion that we're describing Nazism is going to yeah. entail a lot of the same elements, the inability to coexist with liberal ideas, yeah. mass murder of individuals who disagree, yeah. and so on and so forth. Yeah. We don't see a pushback or um, an anxiety around those organizations simply because they identify as Marxist or communist or anarchist and so on to the same way. And like you said earlier, because not well, anarchism is quite is, anarchism to use a specific example is, is quite literally the opposite of that, right? Is that it's a, they're against state control. Yeah. 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 I, <clears throat> I, 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 I agree. I kind of, I, I guess what I mean is I, I put it in there because in the, in the sense of a kind of direct action, anarchist movement of the removal of a central authority in a country that obviously entails the removal of any structures that have guarantees for individuals that were enjoying protections that that central authority was providing. Yeah. I mean, the the, the thing, the thing that I I guess very briefly, the thing that I would say um, is I think that at least from my point of view, the reason why um, I'm more exercised about right-wing authoritarianism um, is because it is a much more salient political force in American life today. Um, and and because you know you have um, uh, these uh, you know massacres at an El Paso Walmart, at the the Tree of Life synagogue in, in Pittsburgh, at the, the 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 grocery store in Buffalo, etc. Um, and and you know you, I'm not seeing maybe maybe they're out there and I don't know about them, but like I just I just I'm not aware of 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 like Stalinist. Um, like Stalinist purge. I don't know even know what, what it would be because, because they don't have, because there's no political, they have no political power. If, if, if that was an issue, then we could talk about it. I'm sure if Orwell was alive, he would want to talk about it. But, but I feel like I don't mean to ventriloquize. Uh, no, no, Eric but, Blair, also, but like, but like, <laughs> it, no, like he was also very clear that he was also very clear that on a war footing, yeah. he was okay with certain types of censorship because it supported an effort to remove a greater evil. Yeah. He wasn't an absolutist either. That's a reasonable point. The, the the upshot of this whole thing at the end of 2023 on Substack is that the head of the platform made a very public statement that Nazis are welcome, literal Nazis, he used the word, are welcome on the platform. And that and that he thinks that the, that the best thing is to allow them to build up email lists and, and write publications and make money. 
there's there were many that I found. People have said that I found sixteen. No, I found sixteen that had I found sixteen that had swastikas and and sonorans in them. Um, there there were there were many more than that uh, explicitly uh, Nazi sites. Um, and you know the 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 the, the ones that I was uh, reviewing. Uh, you know that that traffic in extremism and and uh, anti-Semitism and, and hateful ideology like that is it's 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 a much much larger list. And and people have come to me and 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 found even more since. What I would say is that number is only going to grow. And at some point, I hate to think this, but at some point, my fear is that we're going to see something like. Christchurch um, or Pittsburgh, um, the, the Pittsburgh massacre, uh, or, or or something like that happening. Except instead of of the manifesto um, uh, or, or or the author, you know, posting on 4chan um, or 8Q or or wherever, um, that it's going to be on Substack. And the reason why I left Substack ultimately it was partially because of that, and because I just didn't want to be associated with this thing anymore. Um, and also because I felt that that Hamish, um, I, the, the thing that he did that really pissed me off was sharing private conversation uh, with Casey Newton, who was one of his most esteemed and celebrated, literally the the icon on the Substack, lo- uh, the, the, the sample page of the Substack app on the App Store and Google Play. Um, he... He he took an internal communication with with Casey and and gave it to public to Michael Schellenberger's um, and sometimes Matt Taibbi's publication because he thought that it would make Casey look bad and that's that's not that's not a legal behavior that's not you know maybe it's not even immoral but I think it's very unethical and it just made me not trust him and I just didn't want anything to do with that anymore um, and and so all of these things I mean that's that's what I would say that's what I would say I mean yes. I will. We could talk about Stalinism. I have a lot of things to say about it, <laughs> but like, but 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 you know, um, uh, the, the threat in 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 America and in, in the West right now um, is is from is from a very specific kind of of authoritarianism um, that happens to be on the right, and um, and so that's what we're seeing a lot more of. Um, it's not. It's not. It's 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 not a surprise to me that that I would have found a lot more. I didn't find any, but I'm sure there's some Stalinist newsletter. I have no idea. Um, in fact, some of the Nazis use like communist iconography because they do this like third positionist thing. Anyway, I gotta go. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, Jonathan, um, yeah. thank you. You've been yeah. incredibly generous with your time. Yeah. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I hope it's been interesting and valuable for you also. And, yeah, no, it's, it's been a great conversation. I, I look forward to seeing what you do with this and, and hopefully uh, people uh, will, will react to it in, in the, in the uh, respectful and, and uh, measured and, and uh, intellectually uh, exchanging tone that we have tried to display. Here. I don't know. My, yeah. My hopes are amazingly high for that, but I, 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 I hope, I hope we see that. Well, what what was it they said about the Nuremberg trials that it was the greatest tribute ever paid by passion to reason something like that so I think I think we have something to aspire to there Um, well that's it for this episode I hope you enjoyed it I'd like to thank Jonathan Katz for joining me and of course all of you for listening please check the show notes to find links to Jonathan's work you can also check out our website 1984.today for ways you can support the podcast of course the biggest thing you can do is share it talk about it, maybe leave a comment to give your own thoughts on what we've discussed. Wherever you are, and whatever you're doing, keep the fire burning. We'll be back with more fuel next time. Goodbye.